At Global Genes, we know a rare diagnosis changes everything. You weren't given a playbook on how to cope, how to take that next step, and you certainly weren't handed a blueprint on how to build an advocacy organization or successfully bring a therapy to market. The good news is that rare disease advocates are some of the most inspiring, innovative activists on the planet. And Global Genes works to bring the community together to share best practices, create important introductions, and help catalyze powerful collaborations. That's why Global Genes would like to invite you to join us for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit on September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. The goal of this year's summit is for patients, caregivers, and advocates to walk away equipped with actionable next steps, whether you've been recently diagnosed or building a disease community, thinking about funding early stage research, actively engaged in developing a treatment, or have been advocating in rare diseases for decades. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The FDA Office of Orphan Products Development seeks to advance the evaluation of drugs and diagnostics to treat rare diseases. A growing toolkit of incentives has helped drive the development of new products for rare diseases, but the need remains great. We spoke to Gayathri Rowe, director of the FDA's Office of Orphan Products Development, about the rare disease landscape, how scientific developments are reshaping clinical trials and the use of biomarkers and what the agency is doing to better incorporate patients' perspectives into the drug review process. Gathery, yeah, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. There have been a number of initiatives that have been taken to provide incentives to develop drugs for orphan indications. This started with the Orphan Drug Act, but has continued with new mechanisms. How significant an impact would you say these have had? I think the incentives that are available for developing products for rare diseases um, have really had um, a pretty big impact on helping to bring products to the marketplace. I mean, if you look at the Orphan Drug Act, which was passed, you know, 30 years ago, um, and with it came the incentives associated with orphan designation, like um, the clinical trial tax credits, the user fee waivers, um, the seven-year marketing exclusivities. I mean, these are some significant incentives. And if you just sort of look at the numbers um, since that act has passed, it's, it's really pretty um, um, remarkable. Uh, to date, we've had over 3,500 drugs uh not over, approximately 3,500 drugs that have been designated um, for an orphan disease, and over 500 have been approved for orphan diseases. Um, since since the passage of the Orphan Drug Act, there have been other incentives um, that have been uh, 
uh, created. Um, for example, the Rare Pediatric Disease Priority Review Voucher Program is a relatively new incentive. It's, it's really too early to assess the impact of that incentive, um, and it's something that we're interested in, in um, keeping our eye on. And in addition to the incentives under the Orphan Drug Act, the voucher program, there have been a number of other programs um, that have been developed to expedite the review and approval of products for rare diseases. So a lot, a lot's happening. Um, that's certainly not to say that, you know, we are where we need to be. There's still a lot more we need to do in terms of developing products. Um, for, for patients with rare diseases, but, but this is certainly a, a priority area. As drug makers have been provided new incentives and, and put a greater emphasis on rare and orphan indications, how has your office resources kept pace with the increased volume? Um, that's a great question. Um, it's, been, it's been really challenging, but um, I'm really privileged to be in an office where the folks I work with are actually really passionate about our mission. Um, they really take what we do to heart, and they work really hard. So in spite of the record number of requests that we're getting, for example, for orphan drug designation or having to implement new programs, um, we're still managing to review these applications and, and um, serve as a resource to sponsors um, in, in a timely fashion. And it's our goal to continue to do that. Um, obviously, if this were to continue, you know, something's going to give eventually, and, um, you know, we may start to see some delays. Again, we're working really hard um, to not have that happen, but um, with limited resources and an increasing workload, at some point, something's going to give. Despite the gains we've seen in the volume of orphan drugs in development, as you noted, there, there still seems to be concern about the volume of new drugs being developed specifically for pediatric rare diseases. Is there something that makes these indications harder to develop therapies for? Is there something that makes them less attractive to drug makers? You know, I think, you know, when you look at rare diseases in general, um, most rare diseases are diagnosed in childhood. So the overlap between um, patients with rare diseases and the pediatric population is pretty significant. Um, and so a lot of the challenges that exist for developing products for rare diseases exist, and there are additional challenges when you're thinking about studying the drug in children. So when you're thinking about developing something for um, a rare population, obviously the, the size of the population makes it very hard um, for enrollment in clinical trials, um, these populations, these diseases, there's a lot of um, variability in how the disease presents. Um, you know, often we don't know a lot about the natural history of the disease, and so it's really hard to understand what the clinical course is and what might be good biomarkers or endpoints to study. Now, all of these things are issues and challenges in studying um, a rare disease in general. When you think about these challenges and you add to it um, studying it in a pediatric population, there are additional things you have to think about um, because there's a lot of growth and development that happens um, in in pediatrics and pediatric spans, you know, neonates on to you know 
um, you know, 16, 18, or 21, depending on which type of product you're talking about. And so a lot of changes are happening um, in this in this population that needs to be accounted for. And there are also a lot of additional um, ethical considerations when you're studying products in this group. So, um, so it, it, it's not easy, um, and it, it's really remarkable um, sort of the innovation that's happening in this space. You mentioned the pediatric voucher a moment ago. Are there other things the agency can do to encourage and accelerate the development and approval of drugs and devices for pediatric rare diseases? There's a lot of activity that is going on at the agency that is focused on both developing products for children as well as developing products for patients with rare diseases. Um, this past year, uh, in July of 2014, the agency released um, its strategic plan for how um, uh, it is looking forward, um, what are all the different ways that the agency is looking to accelerate the development of therapies for children with rare diseases. So that report um, um, is available on our website for, for folks who are interested. In many cases of pediatric rare diseases, we're, we're talking about diseases that are driven by genetics. There's long been talk about personalized medicine and precision medicine, the need to improve regulatory science to take into account scientific advances. How good a job is the FDA doing in regards to using new science to improve trial design and employ biomarkers to get at faster answers about whether a drug is safe and effective? Um, you're right. This is a very um, exciting time in terms of um, scientific research and advancement. Uh, things are changing very rapidly, and um, the agency is really committed to keeping pace um, with with evolving technologies. Um, at the same time, we um, need to make sure it is incumbent on us to make sure that the products that end up on the market are, in fact, safe and effective um, for the patients um, who, who need them. And so we do utilize the tools that are available to us um, um, as effectively as we can to uh, make sure that the products that we do review um, ultimately are safe and effective. There's been a fair bit of pressure, particularly from patients, about accelerating the access to new drugs. At the same time, there's also concern about maintaining the balance between safety and speed. How does the FDA strike this balance? Um, It's a daily challenge for uh, for the agency because we're very sensitive to the fact, particularly um, in the rare population, we're very sensitive to the fact that often these diseases are devastating. They're they're very serious. They're often life-threatening. There's often no other treatment out there. Um, So we're very sensitive to the needs um, of the patients um, who are dealing with these rare diseases. Um, and at the same time, we are trying to think about what um, is what we need in order to make the determination that a drug or a device is safe and effective for that patient population 
and trying to strike the appropriate balance between risk and benefit um, for each individual population. And particularly in this case, I think the agency really tries hard to um, exercise um, flexibility to, to the best that it can um, for these different patient populations. But this isn't easy. Um, this, it is a constant balancing act between the need for safety um, and speed. Though it's not the purview of the agency to maintain natural histories of diseases, there are greater efforts to do this. Is this having any impact on getting the agency better answers about developing clinical trial endpoints and finding validated biomarkers? Are, are you working with any partners in this regard? You know, it's been, it's been a real focus of the agency to really particularly in the rare space to emphasize um, the need for good natural history study data. Um, because really sort of understanding what the disease, how the disease progresses is really key and has played uh, an important role in many instances in helping to identify what's the right population to study for a given therapeutic or what might be a good endpoint to study. Um, so this has been a real area of focus. There are resources within the agency to provide um, input and guidance on um, 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 groups who want to conduct natural history studies. Um, so there are certain resources available. You can meet with experts from the agency to, to talk about your natural history study design and what are the kinds of things you should be thinking about. Um, and and there are um, different collaborations um, and partnerships that are um, being considered to further promote this really important um, um, to really to really um, further this important area. Um, I mean, this is important for for diseases in general, but much more so for rare diseases because often you only have one shot at getting this right. And so the more information you have in developing a clinical trial, um, the more likelihood of success there is. There's been growing recognition in the value patients can bring to the drug review process, and the agency has sought to formalize this to some extent. Why does this matter? I think it, I think the agency really recognizes and understands the value that uh, patients bring throughout the drug development process, not just at the tail end, but from the get-go. Um, and there are many ways in which patients can contribute to this process. But certainly, you know, when you're thinking about um, patient input in the review process, it's always important that what the agency does is consistent across the board, you know, and I think that's where some of these efforts to formalize how to get patient input, what what some of the aims are. You know, how do we get this information in a way that's consistent and meaningful? How do we use this information when drug applications or device applications are being reviewed? And how do we use this information to inform risk, benefit, and approval decisions? 
So, so these are questions that come up in different diseases. And so it's really important to ask these questions at sort of not, not necessarily at a disease by disease specific basis, but sort of overall, what's the best way to collect this information? What's the best way to utilize this information? How have these efforts worked to date? You know, there's been a lot of um, emphasis placed on this. I think we are continuing to learn from our experiences. Um, The patient-focused drug development initiative um, has been a really important initiative for the agency, and it's been a real learning process, I think, both for the agency and for the stakeholders we've worked closely with. Um, And I think it you know, it'll really serve as a platform um, from which to build on. Um, certainly, you know, the Patient-Focused Drug Development Initiative is just one of the many initiatives uh, um, currently underway. Well, as you learn from these experiences, what do you think the best way to incorporate patient perspective into the drug review process is? Um, you know, it, it's hard to make sort of uh, general statements here. Um, like I said, this is, this is, um, um, you know, we're, we are working closely with patient groups and with drug companies and device companies, um, to figure out what is the best way to obtain this input. Um, but for now, you know, patients can engage with the agency in a number of different ways. So, for example, they could meet with um, the agency to talk about how to conduct a natural history study, for example. Um, there are many patients who have reached out to the agency for how they might be able to provide um, their perspective in terms of what's important to them um, when there is um, a drug under review. Um, they've, um, they're often, they've often been very active in the advisory committee process and serving as patient representatives. So there are a number of different ways that patients um, currently are and continue to be very involved um, in the process. But having said that, um, you know, we are really working closely um, with others to figure out how do we leverage this and build on this and continue to incorporate the patient perspective um, much more. Gayathri Road, Director of the FDA's Office of Orphan Products Development. Gayathri, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. If you'd like to learn more about Gayathri Road and meet her, join Global Genes for the fourth annual Rare Patient Advocacy Summit, September 24th and 25th in Huntington Beach, California. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org forward slash 2015 summit. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, 
on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.